Hello, and welcome to the podcast for the journal Integrated Environmental Assessment and Management, better known as IEAM. I'm Jenny Shaw. Today we're chatting with Stuart Hurlburt. Yep, that's Stuart Hurlburt, the one who wrote the 1984 landmark paper on pseudo-replication. That paper has almost 7,000 citations and continues to be discussed in countless papers and forums. Stuart is now Professor Emeritus at San Diego State University, and he joined us to talk about an article that he and co-author Celia Lombardi wrote in a recent issue of IEAM on pseudo-replication and other common types of statistical error. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jenny. I think most of our listeners have at least a vague notion of pseudo-replication. But would you briefly describe the concept? Uh, pseudo-replication, as I defined it originally, is a serious but simple error of statistical analysis that is common in the literature of many, many disciplines. My original paper focused on ecology, but there's now papers on pseudo-replication and all sorts of other disciplines. And this error can occur in both experimental and observational studies, but today let's just talk about its occurrence in the context of experimental studies. The simplest definition of it probably is the statistical treatment of multiple samples or measurements from a single experimental unit as if each sample represented a separate uh, independent experimental unit. That's what it boils down to. Tell us about how it's been mischaracterized over the years. The two commonest misunderstandings that are pretty widespread is, first of all, it's an error of statistical analysis and interpretation. But a lot of people have used the term to mean an error or weakness of design. So if you only have one aquarium in each treatment, then that's a very weak design. You can't really do a valid test for a treatment effect. But the design itself is not the problem. It's what you do with the data that it yields where the pseudo-replication comes in. And another common misunderstanding is that pseudo-replication only occurs when there is a single experimental unit for treatment. The sacrificial pseudo-replication is the commoner sort in many disciplines. And they're pooling the multiple samples among the various aquaria in a single treatment together and treating the sample as the uh, experimental unit instead of the aquarium. So those are the two commonest ways that you see pseudo-replication mischaracterized. Thank you for that. The article mentions other types of statistical malpractice. What are some of those? Well, just to take one that we termed pseudo-factorialism, and the simplest definition of that is the invalid statistical analysis that results from the misidentification of two or more response variables as representing different levels of an experimental variable. One tail tests are another. The textbooks are very confusing, especially if you look at more than one, as to when you should use a one-tailed test instead of a two-tailed test. Many books recommend their use if the researcher hopes, expects, or predicts that a result will be in a particular direction. That's to say the herbicide effect will be a negative. And a one-tailed test does not involve the usual null hypothesis of no difference. It entails a null hypothesis that may be not greater than zero or not less than zero. Uh, multiple comparisons 
are something we looked at over the years, as most people have, because the textbooks are very confusing about these procedures and when to use them. So these are procedures that try to fix set-wise type 1 error rates. So in, in the context of a particular manuscript, you might be doing dozens or conceivably even hundreds of separate statistical tests in that manuscript. And starting in the 1940s, some statisticians, in particular Tukey, got sort of paranoid about this idea that, well, gee, even if you take your data from a random numbers table, if you do enough tests, you're going to find significance by chance. And so somehow you need to control for that possibility. But the whole idea basically is bogus. There are all sorts of so-called multiple comparison procedures that were developed over the last half century. But when you look closely at them, none of them can be applied without making some very, a number of very arbitrary assumptions in the process of doing it. And so they simply make the statistical results less intelligible than if you simply do the separate tests. So those, those three things, I would say, are, are big things, and they all sort of relate to each other in various ways. So what exactly is a neo-fisherian? A neo-fisherian. Well, back in the early part of the last century, following Fisher's lead primarily, almost all statisticians quickly adopted this notion that Fisher put out sort of casually of fixing alpha or the probability of a type 1 error, usually at 0.05, and then using the labels significant or non-significant to describe the result of a statistical test according to whether the p-value obtained was greater than or less than this magical 0.05. That's the paleo-fisherian approach. But if you look, and you really have to hunt, this is a detective work, uh, reading between the lines in the text of papers written by Fisher and other leading statisticians in their writings, you can detect that they gradually recognize that this business of fixing alpha at any level and then dichotomizing the language with which you describe your result into significant and non-significant results made no sense. It's such a completely arbitrary number you've picked to begin with, and everybody intuitively, people who's only halfway through their first course in statistics know that, well, gee, if you get a p-value of 0.04, instead of 0.06, that really should not be grounds for a radically different conclusion about what your data show. That's just intuitive. But this whole thing took off, and despite these old guys, although they themselves seem to have evolved in their writings, none of them were very clear and explicit on this matter that fixing alpha probably was not necessary and, in fact, unproductive. But they never got around to completely stating it. In more recent decades, there have been a number of people who pointed out that, yes, indeed, there's no need to uh, fix an alpha, and there's certainly no point in using these labels. And so a neo-fisherian is simply someone who represents the endpoint of this conceptual ev evolution. We, we don't specify alphas. We don't use these labels significant and non-significant. This ties into these issues of one-tailed tests and multiple comparison pre procedures, uh, both of which are driven by the idea that you, you're fixing alpha and uh, what you fix that at would make a big difference in 
how you interpret a result. We we could talk about this for a very long time, but I want to get us back on on track. And and I think a lot of people would be interested to hear. After all these years of publishing on this topic, have you seen that your analyses have had an impact on the quality of research? With respect to pseudo replication, I have to say the error seems as frequent in the literature as it ever has been. I've got two big recent reviews of pseudo-replication frequency on my desk. Uh, one of these reviews found pseudo-replication in 68% of papers on effects of logging on biodiversity. The other paper found it in 45% of papers on effects of ocean acidification on marine organisms. So what do you think is going on? Why are we still seeing such a high rate of statistical errors? Well, this goes right to the instruction issue uh, and the quality of curricula and statistics, both in math departments or math and stats departments and in biology departments or psychology departments or sociology departments. A lot of disciplines have found that they want to develop their own stats courses because the ones in the math department tend to be taught at too theoretical a level. An introductory statistics course should be strongly focused on the design and analysis of experiments. And actually, I think the best teacher for a stats course is someone who's experienced in a particular discipline like ecology, who has actually been doing experimental studies and observational studies and doing analyses of data sets and knowing all the potential problems you can run into. And a large percentage of the statisticians don't really have all that much. They tend to be um, theoretical statisticians, mathematical statisticians. Um, the most widely used textbooks have very serious errors on fundamental matters relating to pseudo-replication and other things in them. I published a, a review of a book by Silkone Rolf, which is now in its fourth edition and has probably been the single most used reference for statistics by biologists over the last half century, but it's always had uh, severe problems. And the same is true for the documentation that comes with many statistical packages. When I have read that, it seems to have been written by people who may have been very good programmers, maybe very good mathematicians, but these are authors of that documentation who are persons unfamiliar with the basic terminology and concepts of experimental design. And so the documentation is very confusing if you're trying to relate the way they're using terms like experimental unit, for example, with what its actual meaning is. The best suggestion I would have for anybody who's contemplating writing a book, historically a big part of the problem has been design and analysis have been treated separately. Design was considered something, well, it's first you take a year of statistics, then if you want a course in experimental design, that's sort of separate, and that's a specialized topic. But it's the separation of design and analysis which has created a lot of the problems. I make a big point of that in the, the review I wrote of um, Sokol and Ross' book, because that is the classic example of a book where there's almost no mention of design. So they give you these data sets, but it's unclear exactly what the design was, unless it was just the simplest sort of design in every case. And that's why a primer from you would be so useful. Yeah, I gave sort of an outline of that 
book I would write as part of my paper, the one that's titled The Ancient Black Art of Pseudo-Replication and Its Transdisciplinary Extent. And I squeezed into that short paper what I consider the core concepts and terms for experimental design. I mean, that shows you how finite they are. If I can't find some younger person to write this book, then I'll have to take it under consideration. Eh, well, after this podcast comes out, you, you might actually get some takers. Okay. I would be the co-author doing the lesser amount of work for somebody who really wanted to put out a good book. I bet there will be some willing takers. Hey, Stuart, thank you so much for sitting down with us. It's been my pleasure. A lot of fun. You've been listening to Stuart Hurlbert discuss his article, Pseudo-Replication, One-Tailed Tests, Neo-Fisherianism, Multiple Comparisons, and Pseudo-Factorialism. Access his and Celia Lombardi's learned discourse in the January 2016 issue of IEAM. Just go to ctechjournals.org. I'm Jenny Shaw, and thank you for listening to the IEAM podcast.